Our Father, we do want to thank you for the way that you help us to understand about uh, what is impossible for us that only you can do. And we pray that as you teach us from the Bible tonight, we might see how amazing you are in bringing together your love and your punishment for what we deserve. Now please would you teach us from 2 Samuel chapter 18 that we might love Jesus more. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 18 and uh, the whole lot. That's on page 269. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and their loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw, saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver... I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. 
on the other hand, if I had dealt tre- treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Jab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you will carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king and the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man. And comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with young man Absalom? Amaz answered, When Joab said the king's servant, Your servant saw a great commotion, but I don't know what he was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. 
And the Cushite said, Good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Keep the Bible open. We're going to be looking at that story. Natalie's going to take uh, the children away, and they're going to be learning in their group uh, what we're learning in this room. So uh, uh, if you head off, uh, they'll be uh, looked after very, very well. They'll come back and they'll tell us what they've learnt. Uh, before they do, when we look at this passage, we have opportunity at the end to allow people to ask any questions they want or make any comments they'd like, so be ready for that in a moment. If anything is not clear, <clears throat> you can get a chance to ask. Uh, you don't have to uh, scratch your head in silence not knowing what's going on. Okay, so we're going to start tonight with a question. And what is the hardest thing for God to do? Do you spot what might be the hardest thing to bring together in that little story we just read? But let me tell you, if you haven't spotted it, the hardest thing for God to do is to be both fully just and fully loving. Because fully just means that you punish wrong. Fully loving means you forgive wrong. Don't treat wrong as it deserves. And the two are opposite actions. And they can never be brought together. They are always pulling in different directions. And you see that never quite coming together, certainly in the world of politics, generally uh, those on the kind of political right believe that wrong should be punished, take a tough line on crime. Those on the left in politics generally like to see people cared for, offenders rehabbed, looked after. You see that tension in parents, dad's discipline, mum's cuddle. Really hard if you're a single parent having to do both. And we need to think about that tension tonight. Because love and justice seem to be two different things pulling two different ways and we'll see them pulling two different ways in this part of the bible tonight first we're going to see the battle for justice and that's what's going on in the first part 
Uh, you might uh, wonder what actually is going on with these different people in the story. If you've never read this part of the Bible before, it might all be very new to you. Let me explain. <coughs> There's been a young prince called Absalom. And he's been trying to elbow out his dad from being the king and take over his kingdom. In fact, actually, he's done that already. He's already taken over the capital city and the king's wives and concubines and harem. And he's making sure everybody knows that he is now the king of the place in those different ways. Now, you might say there's nothing really unusual about that. Military coups happen all the time. But this one is different. Because David is not just another king that's been turfed out and someone else takes over. David is God's king, God's anointed king in the Old Testament, who is getting us ready to understand what it would be like with his greater descendant, Jesus, who is God's king in the New Testament. So this Mitriku is not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill, same old, same old. This is a battle against God's king, and therefore it is a battle against God himself. And you see that in the way the battle happens. Have a look, and you can see in chapter 18, and you see... How uh, when the fighting starts in verse 6, the army went out into the field against Israel. The battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Uh, the battle actually uh, is uh, uh, very quick. No sooner that you hear the battle started, than you hear the next verse, 7, the battle finished. And the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. You get the results. But the interesting thing about this battle is you might have seen those results coming if you were here last week and you read chapter 17 verse 14 it's on the same page have a look it says that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom therefore you might just expect very soon that harm is going to come to Absalom it just did. And it is harm from the Lord because it is very interesting that one of the ways in which people died in this battle is because the forest seemed to be fighting on David's side. If you look at uh, verse uh, 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 8, the battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now if you know the Bible and the way it works, you know that often the way battlefield conditions are slanted in the favor of God's preferred choice usually is the way God guarantees success <coughs> to the one he wants to win. And the forest is doing the work for him. And fighting the battle, if you like, for David. But you see that even more in the demise of Absalom himself. It is very interesting, isn't it? The main battle itself, 20,000 people die, all that, yeah, true, 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 true. 
but it only takes three verses. Six to eight, done, dusted, battle finished. But then, verses 9 to 15, this is really interesting. Why does it take so much to tell you about the death of one man? Absalom. He gets a whole lot more space than the 20,000 who died. Why? Because the way he died is really interesting. If you uh, look uh, at uh, uh, verse 9, he was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the, thick, the branches of a thick oak, and his head got caught, caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. Okay? So the forest got him as well. But when you read about that happening, you're not just reading about some unlucky cove who should have been looking where he was going and stupidly got himself tangled in the branches of a tree because he didn't. Now you're looking at something a whole lot more. You know what you're looking at? You're looking at something that God said would happen at the very start of the Bible. Start the Bible, there are five books, and in the fifth book, it's a book called Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verses 22 to 23, it has these words in it. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night in the tree, but you shall bring him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the, your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You see, what he's really saying, God's people are from the very beginning of the Bible trained to think that whenever they see a man hanging on a tree, that man is being cursed by God. Right from the start of the Bible, they're being trained to think like that. Every time they see a man hanging on a tree, there's a man getting cursed by God. This is God's battle, and the man dies under God's curse. So Absalom was no ordinary accident. It was God's justice, God's punishment for what he had done. And Joab is the bloke who made it happen. He is absolutely ferociously loyal to King David. And he knows that David's kingdom is not going to be safe until this incorrigible prince is dead. And so in go the three javelins in verse 14 and others finish him off in verse 15. Joab's right. Justice has got to win. Otherwise this man continues to be a nuisance another day. Jab's right because this is a man under God's judgment. But Joab's wrong 
because he is defying the orders of God's king. Everybody heard them. In verse 5, deal gently with the young man Absalom. Now in Job's book, that was daft. That's like telling the surgeon who's going to operate on your cancer, look, would you mind, leave the main tumour, would you? It's a part of me, I quite like it. Now David realises that's a, uh, Job realises that's a silly thing to do. And he wants the whole lot out, and Absalom goes down. The battle for justice is won. With me so far? Let's have a look at the battle for love. Because this is the opposite battle. Because it shows us the dilemma of love where the king, David, has to punish. But the dad, David, wants to protect and save. And so Absalom deserves to die, but David wants him to live. And so, yes, if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, he's making battle plans. But at the same time, he wants to protect Absalom as well. Deal gently with the young man Absalom. Do you get that? As far as David's concerned, he's still the young man Absalom. He's not a treacherous rebel. He's the young man Absalom. Deal gently with him. And that might have been actually the reason why he put the army under three commanders. Because at least that way there's a, there's a two-thirds chance of Absalom not being found by this brute job. And maybe he'll survive if he gets caught by the other two. I don't know. The fact is that David wants to deal gently with the young man, Absalom. And you interestingly note, when the battle report comes in that he's won, look at verse 28, there is the battle report saying, uh, all is well. What's the first thing David wants to know? In verse 29, is it well with the young man, Absalom? Well, diplomatic answer from Ahimaaz, I mm, saw a kerfuffle. Then the Kushai comes, same news, verse 31. Good news for my Lord the King. The Lord has delivered you to safer. What's the first thing he asked in verse 32? Is it well with the young man Absalom? Same question. In fact, actually, if you read on, we won't be reading this next week, but chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, Job says, actually, as far as we're concerned, any number of us could have died as long as Absalom lived. That's the only thing you're bothered about, aren't you? And then David, when he finds out that Absalom has died, reacts in the last verse with inconsolable grief. He went up the chamber of the gate and wept. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. See, in a funny sort of way, his wishing him wishing that he would die instead of Absalom is really wanting justice to fall on him 
and not on this rebel. And you can understand why David might say that, because actually this mess, this whole kind of kingdom in an uproar situation he is now in is frankly all his fault. He's the one who went and had an adulterous relationship with another woman and had her husband murdered to cover up his tracks. These are all his pigeons coming home to roost. You can understand why he says actually I'm the one that should be dying here. But as he wants the son to have lived, of course, he can't. It's where his kingdom is powerless. That's why he's, he's so desperately unhappy. Because the one thing that this king of God cannot do is to bring justice and love together. One had to win. And it wasn't love. David might want to die in Absalom's place, but he can't because he's too much of a sinner himself. And so the battle for justice is won, and the battle for love is lost. But you might remember something. You might remember, I told you at the start, that David in the Old Testament is not just history, same old, same old, it is preview. David in the Old Testament is a preview of what it would be like for the Lord Jesus. And there was one time in the history of mankind when justice and love came together fully. And that was when the king did die instead of the rebel. And that's what happened on the cross when Jesus died. Because on the cross, King Jesus died for the sins of every single Absalom in the world who lived as if he wasn't the king. And that is actually what sin is. It is to be like Absalom. It is to live where God's king rules but without treating God's king as king. And so Jesus died the death of Absalom on a tree and you are trained to think what? That a person hanging on a tree is cursed by God. Because you understand the Bible, that's what you look and see when a person is hanging on a tree, which is what the cross is. And so Jesus died the death of Absalom on a tree. And he did what David wanted to do. Oh, that I had died instead of Absalom. And Jesus in his kingdom was able to do that. David couldn't. He had too much sin on his own. Uh, which is why I guess Paul would write later in Romans uh, chapter 5 and verse 8. I'll read it to you. Uh, he says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
and the righteous died for the ungodly. And so Jesus died in the place of Absalom, the rebel, who wouldn't want him to be king. What can that teach us today? Well, I guess if you're someone who's kind of new to Christian things, I guess most people on our estate who've not thought about God too much, I guess, would probably think that generally uh, God will find it easy to, in the end, let us off. Especially if you've tried your hardest to let the good be more than the bad and that will tip the scales in your favour and you'll be okay. Most people think like that. What we don't see is life the way the Bible sees it. That actually, the way we live is like Absalom. Sin is a rejection of God from being our proper, full-time, personal king. That is what sin is. It is to be Absalom in God's world. We don't see it like that. We see it's kind of a couple of mistakes and you can maybe try and compensate with something else that's good. And therefore we think it's, well, if someone says that God's judgment has got to fall on Absalom type sin, and we think in terms of the New Testament, which is to die under God's curse means ultimately to die in hell, well, we're going to think that's a bit harsh. It shouldn't happen like that because in the end, people should not be put outside God's kingdom like that, which is what happens to Absalom in that story. And yet that Cushite in verse uh, 32 is right. Unless the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against him for evil don't end up like Absalom, there is going to be no security in God's perfect kingdom. There cannot be a secure kingdom if there continues to be the trace of evil, the seeds of evil growing in it. It's got to be removed. There couldn't be anything worse than an eternal world with the seeds of evil still continuing in place. That judgment has to fall. But I want to suggest that there is actually an alternative for us to do the natural thing, which is to push back and to say, no, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that I'm like Absalom. I'm not buying that uh, I deserve hell. And I want to say the alternative is entirely within our reach if we see how much God's love extends to absolutely any Absalom because his king died in place of Absalom type people and was able to do what David could never do. So therefore, no one needs to stay on the outside as rebels because there's a king who loves 
who dies to welcome rebels into his kingdom rather than to keep them out. But that welcome will only be yours if you are able to humble yourself and say, yeah, actually I am like Absalom and I do deserve the same judgment that Absalom got. I do deserve to be cursed by God. But the king took my curse in my place. That's the invitation to our estate. As we go around and meet people uh, week after week. What happens if you're a, a church experienced person? You've knocked around churches, you know what the Bible is, and you know what the God of the Bible is like. But isn't it possible that we can be a bit like uh, Joab? In the way that we see bad stuff and we don't like bad stuff and we want God to blitz bad stuff and the people who do it. And that comes across in our hearts in the way that we get fed up with the way people are and we think, yeah, they're really uh, pretty uh, uh, awful. And where perhaps our language shows that we think that when we start using us and them. Oh, they really uh, should know better. Now, I think actually the encouragement for us to think about, if we're like Job, which we are when we think like that, is that when we think like that, we are just as much against the God of the Bible as Joab was. Because the God of the Bible wants, wants to deal gently with rebels. Not us and our desire to be harsh with them. And therefore we are just as much anti the God of the Bible if we don't want God's gentleness to come to sinners. As the rebels themselves. We are as much acting against the interests of God's king, the stated desires of God's king. We are like Joab. We're loyal on the one hand, but actually unlike our king. And therefore we need to repent that we don't care enough for people who get it wrong and want God to deal gently with them. We need God to forgive us, not just them. But what if you are a believer and you want this truth about God who is both just and loving to have a deep impact on your life? How might that happen? Isn't it good for us just to think of ourselves as if we were Absalom after the king had died in our place? Wouldn't it be great for us to be uh, appreciative, thankful, grateful to God that he would do such a thing and that actually he would be the one who would take our uh, sorrow on himself and die in our place? And wouldn't you want to love the God who did that for you if you could humble yourself to see yourself as an Absalom that the king died for in your place and then after that wouldn't you want to live in God's kingdom 
trusting that there is a king who loves you this much every single day. Wouldn't it lead you not to want to rebel against him ever again, but to simply trust him because a love like this is really worth trusting. So if there are any areas of your life where you're still holding out against him, then isn't this a lovely way to think in a way that brings us to trust him again? So we don't kick against him and rebel. We stop that because of his deep and great love for us. I want to suggest that that's actually why these parts of the Bible are just so helpful for us to think through and learn from. And I think it would be a good thing for us to do as we come to an end and maybe just want to talk to God personally, privately. I'll give us a minute so we can do that. And you might just want to... uh, Uh, If you want to be honest and say, God, I'm actually like Absalom myself. And I'm living in the world of Jesus the King and I'm not treating Jesus as King. Please, would you lavish your love on me? Because you have already put your justice on him. Uh, If you're someone who's conscious that you've been a bit like Joab and you're kind of... uh, Uh, not like God wanting gentleness uh, on people who get it wrong, then hate the Joab-like thing in your heart and ask God to forgive that and change that. And then lastly, why don't we take a minute just to thank God that his king would die in place of a a rebel like you and me, and resolve to trust him. Where there might be some battles going on where you don't particularly want to trust him, trust the king who died for you and end the rebellion. Let's do that for a minute and then we'll have some questions. Let's pray first. Minutes up, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing perfect love and perfect justice together on the cross. Holy Spirit, please help us to respond to you with gratitude and humility so that Jesus might be more greatly loved and glorified and trusted and obeyed in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.